Last night we heard from Randy Alcorn that we will eat and drink in the new earth. And he quoted C.S. Lewis that this is not unspiritual but is designed by God. Here's the quote more fully than he read it. There is no good trying to make God more spiritual than He is or to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why He was, that is why He uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Close quote. That's true. And my point in this message is that we don't have to wait until the new earth. Indeed, we dare not wait until the new earth to begin to glorify God by eating and drinking. The title of the message is, What God Made is Good and Must Be Sanctified. C.S. Lewis and St. Paul on the Use of Creation. So I invite you to open your Bibles, click on your iPads, get out your telephones. I want you to look at it with me. I love it when people see what I see, when they look at the book and see what I see, so that when you go away you can say, I saw it in the book. It wasn't Piper. It wasn't man. So, sorry if you feel chastened for not having a phone or a pad or a Bible, but next time. (laughs) Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Timothy 4, and we will read together verses 1 to 5. I'll read it, you listen and read along. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. that God created to be received with thanksgiving for those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy or sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So, the text has two halves split in the middle of verse 3. 
The first half is describing the apostasy, the false teachings. And evidently, the teachings are that sex in marriage and certain foods at least are to be avoided. Then in the middle of verse 3, Paul begins his response to these teachings and he gives a positive alternative to what to do with sex, presumably, and what to do with food explicitly. So that's where we're going. We want to look at the apostasy and the false teaching and we want to look at Paul's positive alternative. The first thing I want to do is help you feel the magnitude of the issue before we tackle those two halves of the text. Two ways might help you feel the magnitude of this, lest you think it's marginal. One is that as far as your daily life is concerned, there isn't a more pervasive issue than this one. And as far as God's purpose in creation, this is essential to it. So those two big, big reasons of the magnitude of the issue. Unlike many issues we could talk about or many issues in your life, you meet this one every minute. At least every waking minute. I haven't thought enough about sleep yet. At every waking minute of your life, you are seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or touching something with pleasure or pain or something in between and therefore must come to terms with the question how you are thereby worshiping God. This is a totally pervasive issue. So right now, it's an issue because you're on a pretty comfortable seat. And sensations in your rear end are pleasant, unless you've got a back issue, and then there are another kind of issues to deal with. But sensations of sound and sight and feeling and maybe smell are in your life, right now, and the issue is, are you thereby worshiping God? And if you don't have an answer, pay attention, because that's what this sermon is about. So that's the first reason why it's big. It's a big issue, because it's always there. Number two, when God contemplated the creation of the world, and the creation of conscious, human, God-glorifying souls, he faced a question of whether they should have bodies or not. He didn't have to give them bodies. Angels don't have bodies. And he decided he would. He would do that. So he put all human souls in bodies that can taste and feel and see and hear, and he did it so that 
through that experience, he would be glorified, and I assume that. That would be another sermon from Isaiah 43.7 and Colossians 1.16 and Ephesians 1.6 and a hundred others to the effect that God created everything for the display and the communication of his glory. But I'm assuming that, and I hope you feel the magnitude of the issue, since God chose to put you in a body for his glory. Now, I know that the devil thinks this is a big deal because of this text. The devil certainly feels the magnitude of this issue. He's behind the apostasy, the text says, especially in the last days. So he's moving along all the way along, and in the last day, this is going to go gangbusters, what we're dealing with here. Christians are leaving the faith, right? Verse 1, some will depart from the faith. Probably they don't know that when they leave. I say that because they're called hypocrites. We'll be back to that in a minute. They think, they think it's okay. They think they're on a, a faithful trajectory in not marrying and abstaining from these foods in accord with the teachings. But they're leaving the faith. That's what verse 1 says. It says that. You see that? They're leaving the faith, whether they know it or not. Now let's talk first about the first half of the text, the apostasy. The roots of this apostasy, Paul is describing at three levels. Number one, the first root, the first source of this apostasy is deceitful spirits. Verse one, second half of the verse, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves or giving heed to or believing in deceitful spirits. So the devil and his demons are at work in the church bringing about a deception. That's what he does. They're in the church. The devil is hard at work. Lots of demons are in the church. And they are deceiving. The Apostle John in Revelation 12, 9 describes Satan as the deceiver of the whole world. That's his name. That's his essence. And John, John, not Paul, John tackled the heresy of denying the physicality of the incarnation in 2 John 1, 7 by saying this. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Same issues behind that false teaching. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So lots of antichrists all along the way, big antichrist at the end. And he and the devil deceive people in the church. That's the first source, deceitful spirits. Second source of the apostasy, teachings. They're called the teachings of demons. See there in verse 1, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So, 
These spirits are not just functioning subconsciously as they do in brains and hearts of humans. They are showing themselves through teachings. They've brought some people to such a clear deception that they have formulated it in teachings. And they are demonic teachings. They're called teachings of demons. Evidently, the content of the teaching is that sex in marriage, bodies, what you do with them uh, in marriage, is defective or inferior. Food, certain foods, I don't know which ones they're talking about, but certain foods are defective or inferior. People who don't make it really as high as God wants us to make it have to settle to eat all the foods and, and, and go ahead and satisfy their sexual desires in marriage. But the, the really spiritual folks, they'll abstain from marriage and sex and, and they'll keep themselves alive somehow, but there will be certain foods that they will reject. That's demonic. Pause for a parenthesis. I wrote a whole book on fasting, all right? I'm the only evangelical that's written a book on fasting. That's an overstatement. I believe in fasting. It's called hunger for God. This text is not about the evils of fasting. There's another issue going on here, so I just want you to know there are Christ-exalting post-Pentecost, Bible-saturated, bridegroom-expecting, good, solid gospel reasons for skipping meals. End of parenthesis. Another sermon someday. There's eight of them online. Did a series on fasting in the early 90s. Close that parenthesis, just a little protection of myself from emails. Number three, so two sources so far for the apostasy, deceitful spirits and teachings, the formulation of of, of that demonic stuff in teachings of demons. Third, people are teaching them. People are doing this. So here we are now, end of verse one, verse two, people were giving heed, those are the the victims of this, giving heed to the deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars, that's people. So we've moved from the, the, the invisible, unhearable spirits to the hearable, readable teachings to the people, liars. Hypocrites. The word for insincerity here is hypocrisy, hypocrisy, which Jesus hated and used a lot. So here they are hypocritical, false speakers. It's not the usual word for liar, which is why I said they may not know they've left the faith. Liar creates the impression that they're. They hate, they hate the faith and want to trick people. 
they may not have any idea they hate the faith. They're just false. The issue here is that they are presenting themselves as, as higher life spiritual people. You get there by avoiding sex and avoiding food, and they believe that's right and godly and good, and they're wrong. <laughs> they're saying it's godly, and it isn't. They aren't that. They aren't godly people. They're liars. They're false teachers, whether they know it or not. They're hypocrites, objectively hypocrites. Then he says, their consciences are cauterized, seared, which may mean that they're too callous to know they're speaking falsehood, or they're so callous they don't care that they're speaking falsehood. Either way, cauterization of the conscience by the demons. So it seems to me now that the big question to ask is, in view of that constellation of causes for the apostasy, that we should ask, why would Satan spread this kind of asceticism? Doesn't seem like him. I mean, he does the opposite, doesn't he? I mean, pornography is the problem, isn't it? Fornication, adultery, not celibacy. That's not the problem. What's, what kind of Satan is this? Not, not the one you think about very often. Surely, if he's going to use food, he's going to make gluttony the issue. Obesity, the issue, not abstinence. That's our word. (laughs) Paul said in, in Ephesians 2 1 to 3, when we were dead in our trespasses, we were following the prince of the power of the air carrying out the desires of the body, and we're by nature children of wrath. That's Satan! License, libertinism, lechery. Well, not in this text. Oh, the subtlety of our great adversary. Of course he loves pornography. If you're into it, you're a lackey of the devil. Of course. Everybody knows that. If you're sleeping around on the weekend, you're the devil's patsy. Everybody knows that. But he doesn't just use the tricks of fornication and pornography and adultery and gluttony. He's got other things up his sleeve, and he is really subtle and really devious, and the Bible wants you to know his tricks so well, which is why you're sitting where you're sitting by God's providence. So here's what we need to do, at least I think this is helpful. We need to 
in trying to figure out Satan's mind here, we need to compare this strategy with Genesis 3. Okay? This first strategy. Because they're very similar and different. And seeing the similarity and the difference, I think, is very illuminating. So let's do that. You don't have to turn here if you want. You know the story really well. So we're back in Genesis, beginning of humanity. First thing Satan says is about food. First thing out of his mouth to the new creation is food issues. Did God, this is chapter 3, verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Now, what had God said, which Satan is asking about? Here's what he had said, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will die. So what was God saying? Let's get God right first, and then we can see what Satan's doing. God is saying, I have given you life, and I have given you a world full of pleasures, pleasures of taste, sight, sound, smell, feel, nourishment. Only one tree is forbidden to you, and the point of that prohibition is to preserve the pleasures in the garden. If you eat that one, you will be saying to me, your will is less authoritative than mine, God. God, your wisdom is less wise than mine. Your goodness is less generous than mine. And your fatherhood is less caring than mine. That's the meaning of eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God says, don't eat that tree. Keep on submitting to my will. Keep on affirming my wisdom. Keep on being thankful for my generosity. Keep on trusting joyfully in my fatherly care. There are 10,000 trees with every imaginable fruit for your pleasure and your nourishment within a two-hour walk of where we stand. They are good. They are very good. And they're all yours. So go and eat and enjoy and be thankful. That's what God said. Don't commit suicide. I love you. Now, what does Satan make of that? He makes a tight-fisted God out of that. How could he do that? He made God a tight-fisted God. He, he took the prohibition of one suicidal tree, the prohibition of one suicidal tree, and he turned it into 
a universal prohibition of good things. So he said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we could linger a long time here. I'd love to preach another sermon on the way that took root in Eve's heart and produced this world, but that's not my point. My point is the strategy of the devil compared to the strategy in 1 Timothy 4. The point here uh, is Satan's strategy, not Eve's or Adam's gullibility. His strategy in the garden was to portray God as stingy, withholding something good of his creation from Adam and Eve. And in Genesis, Satan wanted Eve to believe that God is a withholder of good and rebel. Now, in 1 Timothy 4, Satan wants us to see God as a withholder also, right? A withholder also. For those who want to know him best, they've got to know he's a withholder of sex and, and food. Really rise to the level of what he loves about you would be that. The way he loves you is that. That's the high level of of spirituality. And he wants you to not rebel, but embrace that God. Now. Embrace the withholder now. So the demonic teaching is the same. God is a withholder. God is... Stingy. God's a skin flint. That's the same. What's different about them is that in the garden, Satan wanted us to reject that God, the God of the garden. And in 1 Timothy 4, he wants us to embrace him. So either way, he accomplishes his purpose. He gets you to embrace a, a God of deception, deceiving about God there, deceiving about God here. If you reject God because you are deceived or embrace God because you are deceived, the upshot is the same. You embrace a false God, a God of deception. And in the end, that's all Satan cares about. He could care less. If your false God teaches gluttony or asceticism, care less. God is the issue in food, not gluttony and asceticism. God. Satan has one agenda get you out of worship. And if you do it through pleasure or through discomfort and asceticism, it doesn't make a bit of difference to him. He's very subtle and very, very smart and very insane. If Satan can use abstinence or gluttony 
to promote a false, stingy God. He's fine with that, either strategy. All food is for the sake of knowing and enjoying the true, generous God. And on that, Paul and the devil are in total agreement. It's about God. It's about knowing God. Satan knows that's what it's for, and he's totally opposed to it and will undo that relationship between God and food any way he can. So let's turn now to Paul's response. We're picking it up in the middle of verse 3. So Paul and Satan agree that food is for the sake of knowing and enjoying the true God, and Satan's opposed to that, and Paul's trying to defend it and explain it. So how does he do that? Verses 3, middle of the verse, to the end of verse 5. He responds to the demonic teachings and the false teachers and the apostasy. Let's read it. The hypocritical advocates of the teaching of demons, quote, forbid marriage. Are you with me? Middle of verse 3. Forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving to God. For, in that way, I'm adding that, it's made holy, it's sanctified by the Word and by prayer. That's a very, very involved argument. I love it. One way of describing this response to the teaching of demons is to say, eating is not worship, but may become worship. That'd be my summary of this response. Eating is not worship, but may become worship. That's my summary of those three verses. And then the question is, how? And that's in the verses as, as well. Sexual relations in marriage is not worship, but may become worship. Yes. Smelling toast and bacon early in the morning is not worship, but it may become worship. Feeling fall breezes on the skin and fall sunshine on the face, and fall colors in the eyes, and fall fragrances in the nose are not worship, but may become worship. Eating, tasting, enjoying the pleasures of the world is not worshiping, honoring, loving, and supremely treasuring God in that. It's not, but it might be that's what this text is about. How might it be? Tens of thousands of people are in this city right now. They are 
being sustained by, and they are enjoying that magnificent fall day. The sun rose on the wicked and the righteous this morning, and this is a golden day in Minneapolis. God has kissed this city. They're not worshiping as they ride their bikes down on the greenway right now, leaning on God totally, savoring the beauty of the yellow and greens on the leaves as they do like that. They're not worshiping. They're just loving it, just enjoying it. They're prostitutes. They're fraudulent. I'm getting ahead of myself. Tens of thousands of people are in Minneapolis enjoying God's gifts, and they are not worshiping. Many of them, and I pray many more, are experiences as they, experiencing as they, as they sit by the lake or walk around Lake Calhoun or ride on the, on the Greenway or take a ride out to Stillwater. They're, they're experiencing stabs of joy that are saying to them, you're made for more. I'm praying that's happening this morning. God's patience, God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Just pray that. Pray for 100,000 people today in this city who are just lapping up God's goodness and throwing it back in his face by ignoring him. C.S. Lewis starts to be amazingly helpful in many ways about this point. He devoted an entire chapter in Miracles to the fear that he had of losing the world when he became a Christian. I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose my friend. He says, where will I turn? Where will I go to seek the wildness? This is a huge obstacle, he said, to coming to Christ. I'm going to lose my friend. I'm going to lose nature. And what he discovered, as we've been taught, was that only Christianity, with her doctrines of creation and fall, portray and preserve nature as the horrible, wonderful, lovable, wild thing she is. Only. He feared that if she were dethroned, that her lure to him and his love for her would be over. And He found instead this. This is a quote from one of those little essays I commended to you yesterday, creatively entitled, Some Thoughts. Quote, Because we love something else more than this world, we love even this world better than those who know no other. He didn't lose it. In a letter to a woman 
who feared losing the memory of her husband, he wrote something that I think applies directly to, to food and sex. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God, which he had been doing, and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall love neither my earthly dearest or God. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Nature. Certainly he believed that about loved ones, and I'm saying he also believed it about nature. If it's the first thing, we will lose it. Nature or your wife or husband is the first thing in your life, you will lose them. They will not be all that they could be for you. If they, it is the second thing, then it will be more wild and more wonderful and more beautiful and properly satisfying. In the full flower of his Christian faith, where he was Defending supernaturalism with all his might, he wrote, she, that is nature, has never seemed to me more great or more real than at this moment. As he was writing the book, Miracles. Defending supernature as better and more than nature. She, she. This lower thing has never been more wild and wonderful and beautiful and satisfying to me as she is now. Here's the way he put it in The Four Loves, one of my favorite Lewis books. Emerson has said, when half gods go, the gods arrive. That is very doubtful. Better say... When God arrives, and only then, the half-gods can remain. Left to themselves, they either vanish or become demons. Very relevant. So what Paul is doing in 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, is showing how God arrives... and the eating of food and the having of sex in marriage remain without vanishing or becoming demons. That's what he's doing. He and Lewis are on the same agenda here. So look with me at the argument and how it flows. I want you to see this for yourself, if you can. Verse 3, these folks forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods, and now starts the response. Here comes the argument. The sophisticated, involved argument. They abstain from foods that God created. Stop. That's the first response. These things you are rejecting, God made them. It's the first thing he says, God made them. Now, we'll come back in verse 4 where he makes it explicit that the implication of that is they're good. 
That's not his point here. His point here is they're purposeful. What, what's the purpose? That's the point here in verse 3, second half of verse 3. God created to be received. Literally, it's a prepositional phrase for the sharing, for the receiving, for the sharing in with thanksgiving. Get that here and later. With thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul's response first to the demonic teachings is, you hypocrites say that foods are to be renounced. God says they are to be received. That's why they're there. It's a purpose phrase. It's not about their goodness yet. It's about their purpose. They are there to be received. And you're saying not. So you're striving against the purpose of God in creation. And, he says, to be received not by just anybody and not in just any old way, but they are to be received with thanksgiving. Food was not created merely to keep us alive or give us physical pleasure. Food was created in order that God might be thanked. That's why food was made. It says so. To be received with thanksgiving. To be received with thanksgiving. It's a purpose. The world was made to get thanks for God. That's why it exists. The chair you're sitting on was created for that. You could be sitting on a brick or nails. It could be fire in torture. How's your heart doing? Are you making use of the creation? The way it was designed. It was designed to get thanks for God. It's about God. That's so plain from the end of verse 3. Therefore, um, eating is not worship, but can become worship. Sitting on the chair is not worship, but can become worship. Sitting on the chair without thanking is prostitution. It's taking something he made for himself and using it for something else. Eating minus gratefulness to God is not what eating was created to be. And it was created not for just any old person. Let's read it again. God created food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe. And I'm pausing because I do believe that pistois should be taken by itself, because that's the way it's used, usually in this book, believers, lovers of Jesus, lovers of the cross, people who know Christ and trust Him, they're believers. It's, it's, I don't think truth is the direct object of the verb believe. There's no verb in the text. For believe. It's pistois. It's, it's a noun referring to believers. 
an adjectival noun referring to believers, and one of the things about those believers is they know the truth, the truth about creation, the truth about the purchase of the cross. They, all, they know all kinds of truth that are bearing on this issue of how you turn sitting on a chair into worship. And that's who he made chairs for. Not everybody. This world was not made for unbelievers. It's fraud. It's embezzlement when they use it. Without thanks. Without faith. So, it seems to me here that the plainest thing so far about Paul's response is that you have three acts that relate to God in what to do with food, and none of them is an act of the stomach or the taste buds. They're all acts of mind and heart. One, thanking. Two, believing. Three, knowing. So the most obvious thing is to see that at least part of what makes eating worship is acts that are not eating. Right? Thanking, believing, knowing are what make eating worship. And without thanking, believing, and knowing what you need to know in order to thank and believe, you're not worshiping when you eat. Eating food becomes worship by acts that terminate on God, not food, not merely on food. Get back to that in a minute. Thanking is food, is for food to God, right? To God. It's not thanks if it's just a vague sense of thankfulness with no object. <clears throat> Paul is certainly not interested in that kind of thanksgiving. Like everybody in America has thanksgiving. They say some thanks, they don't know who they're saying it to. He's not the least interested in that kind of thanksgiving. This is the, the living creator God being addressed by our souls with joyful dependence. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Believing and knowing. Believing is believing in God. Believing in his son, believing in the cross, believing that you're forgiven and therefore these blessings are not ripening you for hell, which Romans 2.4 says they do if you don't believe. And knowing, knowing terminates on the truth and the ultimate truth is God. So the things that make food worship, make eating worship are Godward things. Thanks is towards God. Believing is towards God. Knowing is towards God. That's, this is about God. Food is about God. Satan knows that through and through. And nothing now we see. Here's the next step in the argument. Verse 4. Everything created by God is good. It's good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So, it's good. That's part of his argument. It's good. Everything created by God is good. And the teaching of demons implies 
Not so sure. The physical sex stuff and just eating that whole, you know, everything on the table there, um, that's defective. That's inferior. That's not the best way to live. It's good. So eat it. It's, eating is good because the creation is good. That's not the way he argued. That's not the argument. He did not argue creation is good, therefore nothing is to be rejected. He did not argue that way. He did not argue by saying creation is good, therefore eating is good. He didn't argue by saying food is from God and good and enjoyable, therefore eating is good and enjoyable and honors God. He didn't argue that way. Here's the way he argued. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if you try to make the argument just the first two premises and leave out the third premise, you can't get it. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The divine goodness of food doesn't make eating food good. It may be prostitution. It may be fraudulent. What makes eating good, food good, or at least, let's be careful because I'm going somewhere with Lewis in a minute, or at least one essential part of what makes it good. Essential part, not optional part. Essential part of what makes eating good is the thankfulness of our hearts. Not words, not words. The devil can say thank you. He can't feel it. He cannot feel it. And you can say thank you. Thank you, Grandmama, for my black socks. Say thank you to your grandmama. Thank you, grandmama, for my black sock. That's not gratitude. This is a sense of wonder that can't believe this sunshine is out again for me. Can't believe I get to live in Minneapolis most of my adult life and have fall. Talk about spring at another time, but fall, that's off the charts in Minneapolis. And he does that for, for, for the wicked and for the good. And some are using it to store up wrath, and some are using it to overflow with thanksgiving. So that's what we're supposed to, to do. The, the argument here, and this was the most surprising thing for me in working through this text again, uh, the most surprising thing to me is that The good creation must be sanctified. Okay, now we're into verse 5. Here we go. For, in this way, fair to say, I think, everything God made, I base that on the phrase, nothing is to be rejected, everything God made is made holy, sanctified 
by the Word of God and prayer. So the clearest thing that just leaps off the page to me is, it's good and it must be sanctified or you can't worship with it. That's the title of my talk. The good creation must be sanctified in order for God to be honored, loved, treasured. What does it mean for food to be sanctified or made holy? I stood right here last year. Raise your hand if you were here at last year's conference. I'd just love to see. Wow. Thank you for coming back. So you may remember, I stood right here and I asked the question, what is sanctification? (laughs) What is holy? What is God's holiness? What's my holiness? What's the holiness of food? I'm adding that because of this text. Make holy. Make the food holy. Sanctify the food, the sex. So what is God's holiness, what is my holiness, and what is food's holiness? And here, here's my summary. I won't, I won't give you a 60-minute argument. I'll give you a 30-second summary. God's holiness is his infinite worth owing to his transcendent, self-existent uniqueness. Been about an hour on that last year. His infinite value owing to his transcendent, self-existent uniqueness like there's a diamond and there's only one of them and therefore their worth is off the charts. My holiness is thinking and feeling and doing whatever accords with that worth. If, If I'm acting and I'm feeling and I'm saying things that make that worth look less valuable, I'm not holy. Third, a thing like food or gold becomes holy by being set apart for God as a means of expressing that infinite worth, the worth of God. And I base that, for example, on the way Jesus talks about sanctifying things. Here's what he said, for example, in Matthew 23, 17, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has sanctified it or made it holy. So you got a temple and got gold. Which is greater, the gold? And he understands the temple is greater, and that's how the gold gets sanctified. But the way it works is that gold is not changed by being built into the temple. It looks like gold. It's still gold. But it is given a God-exalting function in the temple. By the way, it's used in that holy God-exalting place. So it is set apart for God as a means of expressing his worth. That's why gold is holy in the temple. The temple's all about the value of God and presence with us. And when gold goes into the temple and gets used there, it's expressing the value of God and therefore is Holy, so with food, and so with sex. So sanctifying food or making food holy, I think, means setting it apart as a means of expressing the infinite worth of God. 
This is how eating becomes worship. This is how all things become pure to the pure. That's another sermon over in Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. To the sanctified, they know how to sanctify everything. How then, keep going, how then do the Word of God and prayer make that happen? Because that's what it says at the end of verse 5. They're sanctified by the Word of God and prayer. That's how food gets holy and becomes worship when we eat it. How does that work? The most obvious thing to me is to notice that the Word of God is God speaking to me and prayer is my speaking to God. Okay. So, food is made holy by God's talking to me and my talking to Him. So, prayer is. We talk to Him, His Word, He talks to us. So, my general answer, then we'll get specific, my general answer uh, is that food is set apart as an expression of God's worth when we listen to what God has to say about food. And believe Him. Believe Him. Believers do this. We believe Him when He talks to us about food. And we speak back to Him. We affirm, yes, that's what food is. That's who you are in relation to food. And I'm thankful. I'm telling you I'm thankful. And I'm asking. I think this is what prayer is when you're dealing with food. I'm, I'm affirming what you say about food, how good it is, how you give it to me as a means of thanksgiving. I'm affirming that. I'm feeling gratitude rise up. I'm saying it, and I'm asking you. I know my gratitude right now is inadequate, and I'm asking you for Jesus' sake, because he died, me, died for me and loved for me, would you make me more thankful? All those pieces are in prayer. Affirmation, confession of the truth of God that he's revealed about creation and about himself. Gratitude, I thank you, I thank you. And God, I know how, how many times I've eaten and not felt thankful. And I'm sorry and I ask, oh God, that right now there would rise up within me an appropriate affection for the bounty of this room. That's what I think prayer does in sanctifying the air conditioning. Sanctifying the seat, the clothes on your back, the ibuprofen in your chest, enabling you to sit with a little bit more comfort. So, let's make the answer more specific with the help of Lewis, and I'm almost done. And... Uh, I've got a quote here that, from Lewis, part of which I think I understand. <laughs> We've talked about it. I'm pointing to Joe. We've gone around about these things, and I'm going to quote it. It's risky because I don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> but he made me think a thought that I think is true. <laughs> and, and I hope what I think is what he meant doesn't really matter because he's not God. If he were God, I would care more. I care a little bit. But the thought that I had has been very illuminating. So here we go. A few more minutes. This is a quote from Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. 
and it's, it's about the specificity now of how eating can be worshiping. Okay. I've said a lot in answer to that question about how it happens. There's more. And I think Lewis would help us get them more. Here's the quote from Letters to Malcolm, page 71. Creation seems to be delegation through and through. He will do nothing simply of himself, which, he can, which can be done by creatures. I suppose this is because he is a giver. And he has nothing to give but himself. And to give himself is to do his deeds, dash, in a sense, and on varying levels. To be himself, dash, through the things he has made. He's going to be himself. Through the things he has made. One more sentence. In pantheism, which is what that sounds like, God is all. But the whole point of creation surely is he was not content to be all, which he was before creation, but to be all in all. Close quote. Whoa, that's provocative. Man. Now, I am sure that I do not understand all that. Okay? Just be honest here. I am sure I do not understand all of that. But it seems to me that he's on to something that has profound implications for the way food is sanctified and eating becomes worship. He says... He has nothing to give but himself. And I thought, oh, sure he does. Because <laughs> of things he's giving us. So he must mean before creation. I, I think he means he had nothing to give. As he contemplated creation and he wanted to give, he wanted to create creatures to give, there was nothing, there was nothing to give but himself. That's all that existed, was himself. There was no treasure chest besides God that he would look into and say, well, if I made somebody, that would be better than me. or That would be good, and the two together, me plus that, would be really better. All he had was himself, Lewis says. Not the Bible, it's Lewis. I'm trying to effort to understand him at this point. He contemplated, he, he, God is contemplating creating beings now, who will experience maximum joy with him forever, and he had no treasure chest outside himself to give them, to look into, to ponder, and he uh, makes a world. He alone existed. He alone was of infinite value. So when he created the material universe for us to live in, food, sex, color, sound, taste, textures, he was doing it to give us himself. I'm trying to follow Lewis. He was doing it to give us himself for our enjoyment. He was not saying, I'm not enough for you. So I will supplement the gift of myself 
with the gift of physical things since the gift of myself would be inadequate. That's not why he made the world. There's another possibility. I think Lewis is onto it. There's another possible understanding. And that's what Lewis is getting at. As God contemplates creating the world, Lewis says, quote, He has nothing to give but himself, period. And to give himself is to do his deeds in a sense and on varying levels, to be himself through the things he has made. Close quote. In other words, my effort, God creates the physical world for man to live in so that in and through the vast diversities of goodness in creation, God could communicate his own vast diversities of goodness to us. Which means that the physical universe is not an added treasure. Rather, the universe is the kind of garden or orchard where human beings can best taste and see the manifold goodness of God himself in the eating. So, I'm suggesting, along with Lewis, that of all the possible ways that God could have revealed the fullness and diversity of His supreme value, he concluded a physical world would do it best. He did not create plan B. A physical world will do it best. The material creation was not God's way of saying to humankind, I'm just not enough for you. It was his way of saying, here is the best garden where more of what I am can be revealed to finite creatures. The juiciness of a peach and the sweetness of honey are a communication of what I'm like. I'm juicy. I'm sweet. <coughs> now, remember Lewis's words. He has nothing to give but himself. <coughs> and to give himself is to be himself through the things he has made, which is an unbelievably risky way to talk because it sounds like pantheism. That the enjoyment of the peach and the honey is the enjoyment of God because the peach and the honey are God. That's pantheism. He could be taken that way except for the fact that in the context he explicitly says, don't take me that way. He does. I didn't read that part, but it's there. Don't take me that way. What Lewis wants to say is that to enjoy the juiciness of a peach and to enjoy the sweetness of honey is to enjoy God, 
Not because the peach is God or the honey is God, but because that kind of sweetness and that kind of pleasantness or juiciness is indeed in God and from God, and this is the best way God can communicate that sweetness to us. He, he would say, I think, I can't do it a better way. That's amazing. He didn't choose plan B. This is the best way to get across sweetness in God. This is the best way to get across juiciness in God. A little parenthesis here. This is an assignment. I was talking to Noel last night about how impoverished English seems to me to be when it comes to words for tastes. How many can you think of? We can think of four. Uh, maybe it's our problem. <laughs> Sweet, sour, tart. Throw out a few others. Oh, savory doesn't say anything. Aromatic doesn't say anything. I'm talking distinct. What? Salty. We didn't think of that one. Clearly. Okay, I'm, stop the lesson. The assignment is, I do think there are pitifully few. Bacon. Give me a taste. What does bacon taste like? Salty, but I mean, you know bacon from other things that are salty. Fat. Ah. We don't have a word. We don't have a word for the mixture of the yellow on the egg mixing with the buttered toast. We don't have a word. We need words. Why did you just? We need words. That's, that happened last time. Okay, close that parenthesis and see if I can find my place. He's not a pantheist. He says he's not a pantheist. Honey and peaches are not God, but this world in which there are peaches and in which there's honey is the best world for saying God is sweet and God is juicy. And there's no other way to say it better. You might think that there's a spiritual word for sweet. That's only because there's honey. If Lewis is on the right track here, what then does 1 Timothy 4, 5 mean that it is made holy by the word of God in prayer? It means the Word of God teaches us to taste food as a communication of His divine goodness and His supreme worth. And when we taste food as a communication of God's goodness and worth, we offer up prayers of thanks and we ask Him to, to intensify both our physical tasting of food and its transposition into the spiritual sense that the gospel is sweet. The gospel is peach-like for my soul. Isn't that the way Jesus talked? Come to me. I am the bread of life. You, who eats will never hunger. You who who drinks will never thirst. Again, I'm like water. I'm like bread. That's another word we don't have any, any word for. The taste of bread. 
got a word for the taste of bread? Breadiness. Breadiness. It's, that's just what we've got. And he wants, God wants to be enjoyed like that, in that. That's what Lewis, I think, is trying to say. The eating of the peach, the eating of the honey, the eating of the, the bread, in that moment is a tasting of God for those who have eyes to see that that's why he put it there. It is not God. But oh my, it partakes of those aspects that he wants to be enjoyed for. So Paul's response, now summary up, I'm done in one minute. Uh, rejecting food is not the path to holiness. Sanctifying food is the path to holiness. God made it good. It is good. That goodness must be sanctified. Eating is not worship, but it becomes worship. The Word of God in prayer is what we've been talking about. This is 60 minutes or however long I've been talking about, about the Word of God and, and how I respond to Him. All of that makes the food holy so that eating becomes worship. And they do it. This Word of God in prayer do it by showing us how to taste the sweetness of God in the sweetness of honey and give Him thanks. So, conference, may God take all the messages of this conference and all the wisdom of C.S. Lewis and all the wonders of this world and all the truth of his holy word, and his is holy, Lewis's is secondary. May he take all the truth of his word and grant you to taste and see that God is good. And with the help of C.S. Lewis, in an ongoing way, perhaps in your life, may you be granted the fullness of joy in God's creation as the fullness of joy in God consciously giving thanks and lead a life that enables you with likening and logic to help other people taste this. That's what we're on the planet for. All those people down on the greenway, all those people going to sit beside at lunch on the airplane, they're eating and they're not worshiping. And they are waiting for somebody to tell them what all their longings have been pointing to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for air conditioning and lighting and cushioned seats and comfortable clothing and the anticipation of lunch and water that falls off the podium and for a mind that can think and heart that can feel and fingers that can feel the firmness of this pulpit we are lavishly loved. And I thank you, Jesus, because without you, we would be storing up wrath for the day of wrath. 
by not receiving with thanksgiving, but only fraudulently embezzling all your goods. So thank you, Jesus, and thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for quickening our spiritual taste buds. And now, Lord, hear us as we sing to you. In Jesus' name.